In America, we're taught to love our family, but not too much. As the comedian George Burns used to say, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. And that wariness applies with special force to our extended family, especially our in-laws, who we tend to think of at best as peripheral to the nuclear family, or at worst, the notorious mothers or monsters-in-law. You make sure that the boys clean that room. Oh, Deborah, I'll clean up. Boys should play. I hardly ever used to make Raymond tidy up. I know, Marie, and thank you for that. But what if inviting your family into a shared multi-generational household is a secret to a happier, longer life? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. This season on the podcast, we ask what would a century-long life look like if we do more than just inherit the rules of the past? If we're able to reimagine how we live, how we learn, how we work, and how we take care of each other? If we could draw a new map of life? Today, we invite you to forget what you think you know about the other generations, and come with us as we meet the people studying and living a multi-generational family life. Donna Butts is the Executive Director of Generations United, a nonprofit that seeks to improve the lives of children, youth, and older people through intergenerational collaboration, policies, and programs. And she actually has a long history with this kind of work. I did my first intergenerational program when I was in my 20s at the Salem, Oregon YWCA, where I ran a teen program. It was a program that took high school students to visit isolated older adults. And what I found were young people that skipped school except for the day that they were going to see their older friend. Older adults that didn't get out of bed or open the curtains except on the day that their young visitor was coming. And what I realized was it gave purpose, not just to one generation, but to both generations. The program made an impression on Donna, and it was even covered in a local newspaper. And the, the picture that went with the story was of a young man uh, in a black leather jacket and the older woman that he was visiting. She had silver hair. She's reaching across the table to pat his hand and he had an orange mohawk haircut. And she said, you know, he may look a little strange, but he's such a nice boy. And I thought, that's the secret. It's getting beyond an orange mohawk or silver hair or whatever and realizing, again, that humanity. And I think young and old, not having to deal with some of the, the tr difficult terrains that we have to in, in middle life can see that beauty in each other. Now, years later, Donna is still advocating for intergenerational relationships through her work at Generations United. And one important place where those relationships exist are in extended families that live together. When we first became involved 10 years ago in talking about multi-generational families, we were the first ones that actually asked the families what they thought of it. And that's when we heard all of the positive stories. Because at the time, people were talking about the negative aspects of it. So I was doing a lot of media, and I went on a radio show, a live radio show in Louisiana. And the person who was interviewing me kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me, saying, isn't this horrible? Isn't it sad? It's awful that people have to move back together again. I would never want my mother-in-law living with me. It's just terrible. And I kept saying, no, this is what we've heard. This is what we, yeah. So he opened up the lines, and everybody who called in lived in a multi-generational household. And everybody talked about how positive it was for them. And so finally he asked one guy, he said, well, you know, I wouldn't want my mother-in-law living with me. I don't know how you can stand having your mother-in-law live with you. Doesn't it impact your sex life? 
And the guy said, well, he chuckled and he said, well, actually, no, it's better because now our daughter crawls in bed with her grandmother instead of us. Many of us sought more time with our loved ones when COVID hit, whether it was because we desperately needed a hug from mom or dad's help entertain the kids, or we needed to know that our grandparents were with us where we could protect them. But multi-generational living has been on the rise for some time, with COVID as just the latest push for families to come back together. Well, at Generations United, we just released a report called Family Matters, Multi-Generational Living is on the Rise and Here to Stay. And what that report does is it updates a survey, a national survey that we conducted 10 years ago with Harris Interactive. And when we did it 10 years ago, we were in the middle of the recession. And the reason that we did that survey and report was because we knew that there was a bump and an increase in multi-generational families. And at that point, what we found were that about 7% of the respondents said they lived in a multi-generational family, which we define as three or more generations. Now, 10 years later, going back and surveying multi-generational families, what we found is 26% of the people responded that they lived in a multi-generational household. So it was really quadrupling in 10 years. The pandemic has accelerated a change in housing in this country. Millennials, adults between the ages of 24 and 39, continue to move back home with their parents in significant numbers. The coronavirus outbreak is ravaging rural America. Yesterday, the Norton County Health Department said that all 62 residents of a local nursing home have tested positive. 10 residents have died. For nearly five months, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and the people who live in them have been on lockdown. But the isolation is taking a toll on the people it's designed to protect. What we found is about one in four American adults reporting that they lived in such a household. Now, when we asked them why, because we figured that now the big bump was COVID, in fact, 57% said that they began living together because of COVID and 66% said that the economic climate was a factor. But there were other factors that we also know were COVID-related, including caregiving, because it was interesting that 34% of people said they were living multi-generationally because of elder care issues, and 34% said they were living multi-generationally because of child care issues or, or children's education. So caregiving was a, was a huge piece of that. Now, I think what is really fascinating to me is that we also asked them if they intended to stay together. And 72% of the families said that they intended to continue living in a multi-generational household even after the pandemic, because it was working for them. It worked for family members, they were doing it successfully, uh, and they really saw a benefit to it. In fact, 98% of the families said, said that their family functioned successfully. And I don't think that's true across the board in this country. <laughs> 98% is an astonishing response in any survey, let alone a survey of family satisfaction. And it's worth noting that many of these same respondents also acknowledge that this lifestyle isn't easy. The families reported to us that uh, there is stress at times. 75% said there's stress at times. So they wanted to be sure to be clear about, about that. There are conflicts over shared space. Unsurprisingly, the kitchen is often a battleground and concerns around privacy and good communication. But it does make sense that so many families in America are moving into one house because social and economic factors are pushing the generations together. What I think is important is for people to realize that we're not just living longer in old age, we're living longer at every stage of life. And as we figure out what to do with those added years, whether we're getting educated, working, or retired, we need support 
many of us from our families. I mean, kids today can know their grandparents, their great-grandparents, and their great-great-grandparents. And people are living longer, they're living healthier, they're looking at how they want their lives to be different than some of the sort of stereotypes that we've been taught. Gone are the days where it's assumed that mothers will stay home with the kids and that 18-year-olds will graduate from high school and move out forever. Instead, we're in a time where working parents need childcare, young adults need to stay home longer as they struggle with student debt and establish their careers, and many older adults find financial security and care as they age while living with their children and grandchildren. And studies from the last decade show that tapping into these networks for support positively impacts the quality of our lives. Multi-generational living boasts benefits of financial security, access to care, and a boost in moral support, all of which impact our longevity. But what is it actually like to live in a multi-generational household? Uh, my name is Kevin Kennedy. I am a contractor, president of VSP Home Remodeling Incorporated. I live in Richborough, Pennsylvania, and I've been here all my life. Kevin is a contractor who's been helping homeowners his entire career, most recently by helping them create the multi-generational homes they want. And he also lives in one himself. In the main house uh, is my, my wife and I, and I have a son, Justin, and daughter, Madeline. And then at the in-law suite are my, my two in-laws, Bob and Carol. So there's six of us living in the house and two dogs. Kevin could not be happier about the arrangement with his in-laws. They've treated me like a son from day one, and uh, it's been great. I, it's, it's a perfect relationship. Perfect relationships are impossible to come by. So we pushed him on how he decided it would be a good idea to live with his mother and father-in-law? Well, our, our backtracking back to 1996. Kevin answered with a story that gets to the heart of their family's bond. This is how we met. Met my mother-in-law. She is the most honest, quiet, church-going person you're ever going to meet. Back in 1996, Kevin and his future in-laws met when they hired him as a contractor to work on their home. He had also met their daughter, Lori, but only in passing. One night after work, Kevin was at a hockey game. And I hear out of 30,000 people in the stands all packed, I hear, hey, you're the contractor working on my house. It was Lori, my future wife, with her boyfriend. They all had a drink that night. Purely professional. And the next week, he's back at the house, on the job. My mother-in-law, very church-going quiet lady that she is, said to me, hey, listen, I, I just wanted to let you know the, the back of the house looks phenomenal. The siding, the, the windows look great. I, it's, I'm so impressed with it. And my daughter broke up with a boyfriend on Friday at the game. And uh, when you get to the front of the house, excuse me? She said, I just wanted to let you know my, my daughter broke up with a boyfriend. Uh, okay. And the next thing you know, Kevin is invited over for dinner where his future mother-in-law decides to arrange the date to end all dates. The, the mother-in-law said, hey, listen, so what do you do for dinner? I said, well, I live by myself, so I have to uh, cook myself. She said, well, listen, do you want to go to dinner? Uh, I'm going to play along with it. This is the mother talking. I said, yeah, uh, okay, I'll go to dinner. How about tomorrow night? Is tomorrow night good for you to do? Uh, yeah, okay, well, how about 8 o'clock tomorrow? Because my daughter wants to go to dinner with you, and if 8 o'clock's good for you, I know it's good for her. And I saw my wife sit at the end of the table at the time, looking up, going, what is she doing? And uh, Saturday night, we went out, had our first date at the Doylestown Inn, and 20-plus years later, we've been uh, happily married. So uh, I get along very well with my in-laws. Yes, I do. We can't all be expected to get along with our in-laws the way Kevin and Carol get along. But for a lot of families out there weighing their options, they decide on a situation much like Kevin's. It's been almost a year that Kevin's family has been living in this multi-generational household. They knew their familial relationship was strong enough to endure the initial shock of a merger.
But when they decided to move in together, it was coming from a place of care. Uh, my father-in-law is in great shape. He's 82 years old. My, my mother-in-law is, uh, I plead the fifth on that, uh, not going to say her age. They're living long and healthy lives, but eventually, like all of us, they will likely need some care. We thought about, as the time went on, that maybe as my in-laws get older, we got to move them in with us. It felt much safer for us just in case. As people do get older, there could be some issues, and they were not far away, but it was that point of if something happened, how are we going to be able to, to get to them so quickly? How are we be able to take care of them, keep an eye on them? And that's what we felt that the best thing for us and our family was to, to move in together and consolidate. And uh, as Corona started creeping up and uh, uh, we found out news about it, we were very worried about my in-laws. So we decided to put an addition on the house for us and the in-laws. So it's or their own separate place. They have their own apartment. They have their own bedrooms. And uh, it's been a gr- it's just fantastic having them in with us. But this wasn't always in Kevin's plans. I never even imagined that we were going to be together, living together, uh, because I thought in my mind, it's, uh, wh- wh- why do we need to move together? We can put them somewhere uh, if, if something does happen. Like so many others, multi-generational living was not on Kevin's radar. He was living with his nuclear family. Today we're going to see a story about one family and how they live together. About Tony and his dog, Fluffy. About his sister, Nancy about mother who takes good care of the whole family, and about father who works hard for his family. To modern sensibilities, it may seem like the nuclear family has been the building block of our society since the beginning, but actually the term nuclear family wasn't even coined until the 1920s. In fact... When you think about it, our country was really founded by multi-generational families, whether it was Native Americans who lived here first or people who came and settled. The reason that they were able to be successful and survive was because they lived together under one roof. They pooled resources, they shared responsibility, and that's how we thrived. There was a time at the, the turn of the last century when 57% of Americans age 65 and older, lived with their children, grandchildren, or other family members. Then as things changed, families started to move away from each other uh, and, and change. It used to be in the early 1800s. Three quarters of all American workers were farmers, and farming required lots of labor, largely produced by extended families who banded together to work the family farm. This was the economic unit that defined the American family until the Industrial Revolution altered economic incentives. The beginning of a great movement of rural population to the cities that would eventually change the basic pattern of life in America. And so, many cities began growing into great industrial centers. As work moved to urban factories, the extended family unit divided into tighter nuclear families. And then in the 1920s, the ideal of American rugged individualism gained new prominence. It valued going at life alone, with the implication that asking for support was a weakness, even if you were asking your own family. Older adults also became more financially autonomous with the 1935 Social Security Act, further facilitating the separation of extended families. After World War II, as more people sought education and work opportunities in urban areas, more and more nuclear families started living in a place we all know too well. The suburbs, almost as much written about as Madison Avenue. 
This clip is from Red Book Magazine, which at the time was geared exclusively for young adults. These young adults begin to discover Red Book about the time they apply for their marriage license, start life in their own homes, have their first baby, take out their first loan. As Red Book sees them, they are an energetic lot, a carefree lot, even though so suddenly plunged into family life. As the babies start coming, they usually decide to concentrate on their houses, with a woman staying home to learn new ways to run a household. The number of multi-generational families decreased in our country. The low was in 1980, when it was 12%. And so then, what happened? I think there are social, economic, and now COVID factors that have imp impacted and influenced that. So we started then to see that increase again as people were saying, well, hold it, uh, maybe this isn't so great that my children are growing up without any sense of their roots or their history, and the grandparents aren't able to engage, or aunts and uncles aren't able to engage in the young, in younger populations. And people started to look at more ways that they could connect and, and come back together. We're now seeing multi-generational households in all parts of society including in the Obama White House. Yeah. What was it like having your, uh, your, your mother there? Couldn't have done this without her. Just having that multi-generational existence kept us all grounded because mom doesn't really play. She's not impressed with any of us. <laughs> Kevin has seen the rise in multi-generational households too in his work as a contractor. Over the past couple years, we've done a few a year. And what I've been noticing is it's more the in-laws and parents getting moved in. And then of course, when Corona hit, Wow, that was the, the influx came in. We were getting massive amount of phone calls uh, because people needed to get their in-laws in or they felt more comfortable for bringing them in. And uh, it, it was one of the biggest things that we were doing. There's comfort in knowing that we can keep tabs on the safety of our loved ones or that grandparents can help take care of restless newborns. And even in a household like Kevin's with no urgent care needs, it's still a relief to have support. When they moved in, my daughter's still in high school. And it gives us some ability that uh, if she needed a ride to, to practice or at the time it was virtual learning. And as they started to transition back into school, my in-laws were there to take my daughter to school. So for us, it's been a godsend for having that availability. Uh, some people do have that availability. Some people don't have that availability. But from my personal experience, it made it so much easier for my wife and I uh, life-wise uh, because it's hectic. And it's hectic for everybody over the past year with Corona and just trying to get back to life again. Uh, it made it work for us. So it, it's been a win-win situation for us. It may seem small, but this access to caregiving support makes a big difference in the long run. It allows us to take care of our own mental and physical health, and it brings community and purpose into our lives. But there are also other pressing reasons why there is growing trends towards multi-generational household. And it's another factor of longevity, financial security. We know that people who are more financially secure are happier, healthier, and live longer on average. By sharing costs and responsibilities, families help each other not just stay afloat, but to thrive. Well, it's interesting. In the report, one of the things that really stood out to me was the average household income, uh, which is over $100,000 a year. So we know that financially the families are doing, are doing well. And also 76% included a homeowner, so they were more likely to, to own their own home. They were more common in the South and the West. And we know from the, look, the looks that we've done before at multi-generational families, they are more common among new immigrant 
immigrant populations in parts of the country where there are newer immigrants. But when you think about the difference in terms of some of the other demographics, it is more common in Hispanic or Latinx populations, as well as African-American populations, so where it's culturally much more a part of, of how, how you live. In the U.S., Latinos have one of the highest life expectancies of any group, which is surprising because on average they experience more socioeconomic disadvantages, which are linked to shorter lifespans. But part of Latinos' longevity is often attributed to their sense of community. Living with extended family and having a close group of friends seems to go a long way. And really, multi-generational living is something a lot of cultures value. Because really it's, the, it's, it's in our country where we have torn or moved families apart. Um, around the world, around the globe, people I work with, they're, they're always like, oh, you poor people, you don't have, you have such low numbers, you don't have that many people living together. It's a part of the culture, it's a richness of the, of the history. So when people come here, they bring that rich history, that rich cult culture with them. But I think that it's also um, something that is catching up with our entire population. People are realizing how important and how strong it is. The multi-generational living trend is growing, but it conflicts with other visions of how we should live and who we should interact with as we grow older. A retirement community opened on the site of a former cotton field outside Phoenix, Arizona. It was called Sun City. It changed the image of retirement life in America, and Phoenix became a retirement mecca. Now Sun City and its successors face a different challenge, how to attract the coming wave of baby boomers. Some of the things that we have not done well in this country, one of them is creating this whole sort of phenomenon of 55-plus gated communities, that the ideal is for older adults to be shut behind a gate, talk to each other, and live out the rest of their lives. You might remember, even Kevin had always assumed that if need be, his in-laws could go to a place like Sun City. But for Carol, his mother-in-law, that was never an option. They never even had a full discussion about it. But I know she likes the independence. And I, there's a couple places around here that do have that independence, but she... In her mind, I remember her saying that she didn't want to feel old. And she felt in her situation that if she moved there, she would feel like, I'm old, I'm retired, and she didn't want that. What I found is that when you usually, if you visit, what you're going to find is that the conversation centers around three Ps, pain, pills, and passing. It's what hurts, who died, and what medication you're on. And if you're living in a multi-generational household, in a multi-generational neighborhood, those can't be the only three topics because nobody's going to want to talk to you. Um, it's, there's, there's much more conversation about life today um, and more interest in, in, in what's going on and, and some of the changes. So I think whether it's multi-generational households or multi-generational neighborhoods and communities, it's the way of the future. It's healthier for us. Uh, and it also gives people as they age that sense of, of purpose and of value. I get pushback on it. Um, but I also go back and I, I mean, think about it. We didn't used to wear seatbelts. We used to drink and drive. People used to smoke at higher rates. We found out that it wasn't healthy for us, that it shortened our lives. And we know that without that kind of social connection and purpose, it shortens our lives. So. It may, you know, people may have to swallow a little bit, but I really do believe um, that in the long run, it, it's, it's better for us. This kind of living isn't for everyone, and there are ups and downs of any family life, like this one. 
where a contractor friend of Kevin's turned to him for advice for a family that was already living in a multi-generational household. They didn't build that, that separation. And that's one of the things the life needs that you really need to understand is that separation. Because that separation, if it's not there, a lot of people like to have that quality alone time. And now we can see that we need that. And that was one of the things that they never prepped for. So they made it uh, an area where they're always together. And it's the, the tenseness, I guess you could say, of, a, of the, the parents uh, getting involved in raising the kids or they were too loud. And there was a lot of arguing back and forth. And they had called me to see what uh, I could suggest to make this work better. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a disaster. It was just an inconvenience, I would say. There are ways to mitigate the stress, having open lines of communication, private spaces, and clear expectations. Still, multi-generational households may not be for everyone because of the loss of privacy or personality conflicts, or there is simply no way to modify a housing arrangement in an acceptable fashion. But there are ways for people and communities to tap into the values of intergenerational relationships, to help older people stay young and younger people get wise no matter if they're related by blood or not. In fact, people are even creating entire shared spaces centered around the importance of intergenerational interactions outside the family. One of my favorites is in Jinx, Oklahoma. There was a developer, a senior um, care facility developer, who thought it made sense to have children there. Uh, and so he went to the school board and made his case with a, a new development he was creating that the school district should put classrooms in this uh, continuing care community, or in this facility, actually, this, this skilled nursing facility. And so the school board agreed. So when you walk into uh, Grace Living in Jinx, Oklahoma, uh, you'll walk in, and one of the first things you see is an, it's an atrium with beautiful sculptures of children and older adults, and two, a pre-K and a kindergarten classroom. And then the hubs, the spokes that come off of the hub are their skilled nursing, their memory care unit, their other units. Uh, but what happens every morning is older adults come out of their rooms and they wait by the door. And as the children are getting dropped off, they greet every child. They high-five them. They hug them. They welcome them for the day. There's a reading buddies program so that those the older adults volunteer as the reading buddies. And the school, the, the reading test scores of those children are far higher than other first graders when they start. So that investment in older adults. And then they'll have casual afternoon ice cream socials, or they'll, you know, they, they interact in different ways. The kids perform in front of an enthusiastic audience of grandmas and grandpas, just how they sweetly refer to the residents of Grace Living. When COVID hit, Grace Living and Jenks helped the grandmas and grandpas and the kids stay connected with videos uploaded to Facebook. Ladies and gentlemen, and grandmas and grandpas, I have something in my hat. It's my magic teleporter. Oh. This past year has been hard, for some people more than others. But as we move forward, it looks like one thing we can take away from this is the importance of community and family, whether our blood relatives or our chosen family. Families were desperate 
to be able to check in on each other, to be able to make sure that that their parents or their children were, were thriving, and they couldn't do that. So it really made people rethink uh, how they wanted their parents or their grandparents to be living. And I think that that was a big awakening for our country. We've seen a, a really a pretty dramatic increase in, in interest and numbers of multi-generational households. And from everything we can tell, having looked at this issue for the last 10 years, it's increasing and it's gonna continue to increase. As I've said, people may have come together by need, they stayed together by choice because they found out it worked. It's a lesson in healthy and long life that families and communities across the country are learning. Go ahead. Um, hi, grandmas and grandpas. I really hope the nurses are taking care of you. I hope you feel better soon. Join us for the next episode of Century Lives, where we examine how healthcare and technology play an outsized role in the quality and quantity of our years. I like to say that the U.S. has a perfectly designed $3.9 trillion healthcare delivery system. It's perfectly designed to deliver more and more health care. It's not designed to deliver more and more health. That's next time on Century Lives. Our producers are Kerry Thompson and Ava Ahmed Beggy. Music for this episode was provided by Ramteen Arablui and Audio Network. Thanks to PBS, WBUR, NPR, Documentaries Footage, Charlie Dean Archives, NBC, and Grace Living Center, Jenks Skilled Nursing and Therapy for additional clips and archival tape. Thanks to Donna Butts, Generations United, and Kevin Kennedy. Kevin also has a podcast of his own, which he co-hosts called Your Valuable Home. Be sure to check out his tips for homeowners. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at www.longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thank you for listening. I'm Ken Stern.